Hi guys, welcome back on the Blockworks Macro YouTube channel. This is a series of educational macro interviews we're going to be doing here. Please make sure to subscribe to the channel so you don't miss any of those. This is Alf speaking. I'm the former portfolio manager of a 20 billion portfolio. Now I'm the author of the free newsletter, The Macro Compass. And today's guest is Michael Pettis. Michael is a senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment. Most likely I butchered the pronunciation, but they will do it better. Most importantly, he's a finance professor at the Peking University. He's the author of a myriad of extremely good books on China and not only. And he also run fixed income risk in, in, in uh, several shops on Wall Street. So quite the guest today. Michael, welcome. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. So Michael is an expert on China, amongst other things. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. And the first question I have, Michael, is... Can you please paint a broad picture for our audience of how the Chinese business model effectively works or has worked over the last decade or so? Yeah, and I think it's very important to understand that this is a model uh, about which we know quite a lot. Uh, you can trace aspects of this model all the way back to the so-called American system of the 1830s. But really, it's a model that developed in the 1930s in Germany and in the Soviet Union. And since then, um, several countries, at least two dozen countries since the Second World War, have followed various versions of this model. And I call it the, 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 the Gershenkron model after Alexander Gershenkron, who sort of described it. You could also call it the high savings, high investment model. And basically what, what, what Gershenkron noted was that developing economies, not surprisingly, have very high investment needs. But also, not surprisingly, they tend to have very low savings, partly because they have low income. But the key point is that their investment needs exceed uh, their domestic savings. So uh, in order to maximize investment, productive investment, because that's how you maximize growth, um, in the past, they often relied on foreign savings. And so the classic case is the United States in the 19th century, uh, in which uh, tons of European, particularly British and Dutch savings, flowed into the country. And that allowed a gap to be created between American savings and American investment. American investment exceeded American savings by the amount of foreign investment coming into the country. But as Gershenkron noted, that that's quite risky, and it puts the country uh, uh, at the risk of changes in savings, changes in financial conditions in the central nations. So what he argued is that a better way is to force up domestic savings and to keep those savings concentrated within the economy and, and directed into domestic investment. Um, so how do you increase domestic savings? Well, you know, there's a lot of nonsense about uh, countries with high savings are culturally thrifty and hardworking. I've, I grow up in so many different countries. I've never lived in a country that wasn't thrifty and hardworking. Um, <laughs> high savings countries have a very different quality. And that is that all of the income in a country is, is obviously divvied up among you know, various groups within that country. And those groups have different savings and consuming propensities. Basically, you can think of a country as consisting of ordinary people who consume most of their income, 
rich people who consume very little of their income uh, and save most of it, businesses that save all of it, consume none of it, and governments that consume a small amount on behalf of people and save most of it. And so the way you force up the savings rate, and this is why Germany has a high savings rate, why South Korea has a high savings rate, why China and Japan have high savings rate, is you reduce the share that goes to ordinary people and you increase the share that goes either to the rich or to businesses or to the government, and automatically the savings rate goes up. Um, so uh, is this a good thing or a bad thing? Well, when you have very high investment needs, then it's a good thing. So Japan after World War II, the Soviet Union after the war, um, China after 50 years of anti-Japanese war and civil war and Maoism, these were all countries that had much higher investment needs than they had actual investment. So in that case, forcing up the domestic savings rate and keeping those savings within the domestic banking system and making them available for domestic investment was a great strategy because you were able to have very rapid growth in income, uh, in total income. And so even though you were, in a sense, screwing ordinary people, giving them a very low share of what they produced, the total amount of production rose so rapidly that their income also rose very rapidly. Now, the problem with this model, and it has affected every single country that has followed this model, without exception, is that when you have a very, very high investment rate, you close the gap between what you need and what you have. And when you close the gap, you need to switch to a different growth model. And no country in history has been able to do that. Um, what ends up happening is they continue investing, except now the investment is no longer as productive. And as a result, you get the rapid increase in debt that we've seen in so many countries, uh, most notably in China, which has had among the fastest increases in debt we've ever seen. So that's where China is. It had this very successful model, which probably maxed out 10 to 15 years ago, and it hasn't been able to shift. And as a result, investment is way too high, but much of this investment is non-productive. So you get these very high artificial growth rates that are not real, and you get the surge in debt. So Michael, quite a picture that you painted there. Um, I always like to say to the audience that one of the things that really has changed over the last 20 years is also demographics in China, where we've had a massive amount of um, expanding labor force. So basically a lot of kids that became 20 or 25 that entered the labor force between 1985 and 2000, basically we've had a massive increase. And if I look at demographics going forward, it actually look, it looks like that this is going to reverse pretty substantially over the next 20 to 25 years. That's the first thing I would like to get your thoughts on. And the second one is once we maximize this model that you have just described, then we have to move to another model where effectively we try and export growth from the outside, right? We, instead of, of uh, let's say, as you said at the beginning, you try to get... Uh, your share of income from outside effectively because your inside has been maximized already. How do you see those two things combined together? Your thoughts on demographics and basically on the new Chinese business model? Well, the demographics are uh, very important and over the long term in particular. And, you know, it's interesting 
the, 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 the huge shift demographically that China has gone through. After 1949, after the, the, the revolution, um, we saw an explosion. China basically had a baby boom in the 1950s and 60s. And it had so many children that by the, by the late 1970s, China had a kind of demographic problem in the sense that there were a, a huge number of dependents and not enough working age people. So basically, um, there were, uh, um, mostly because of kids, uh, about, I think, 70-something percent of the population was non-working. Uh, it was a very, very high number. Um, no, let me see if I have that right. No, uh, I'm sorry. I'm thinking later. The, the, the working share of the population was in the sort of low to mid-50s. I apologize. Uh, now, in the U.S., it's in the low 60s. And I think in yes. much of the rest of the world, it's in the low 60s. So China had a very uh, a, a low share of working population in the low 50s. But the reason it had a low share was because there were so many kids. And I don't need to tell you, as the kids grow older, they all join the working population. At the same time, uh, in 19, I think it was 78, they implemented, or 76, the, the one-child policy. So the number of kids being added shrunk very rapidly. And the result was that China had an astonishing demographic boom. Its population grew, not very quickly, but it grew. But its working population soared by one and a half, two percent a year, uh, to the point where about ten years ago, the working share of the population in China was around. It was in the low seventies, so very high, very much high. higher than the rest of the world, from much lower than the rest of the world. But that peaked out a few years ago, and now we're reversing because all of those workers are retiring and they're not being replaced by children. So as a result, we are likely to see by the middle of the, uh, of the century, the working share will probably drop back down to the mid to high 50s, right? And again, you think of the U.S. in the low 60s as sort of the standard. So China went from a, 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 a much lower working share of the population to a much higher, which is fantastic for the economy. And now it's reversing that. So that's a problem. But what I always tell people is that that's a long-term problem, and China really has a medium-term problem that is much more serious, and that is consumption in China as a share of GDP is the lowest in the world, and it's the lowest in the world because the household income share of GDP is also the lowest in the world. So while the Chinese population is contracting, is that bad for demand or not? Well, if nothing changes, that's probably bad for demand. Although, remember, a contracting population also means contracting production. Um, but what China really has to do is shift income from local governments, who retain about 20 to 25 percent of GDP, which is very high, to the household sector, which retains about 55 percent of GDP, which is very low. As you see that shift of income, then consumption per person will rise. And the ideal spot for China is that the consumption per person rises more quickly than the population declines. In that case, you will see growing consumption, which can drive the overall economy. Now, 
That's just arithmetic. It's easy to say, but it turns out it's very difficult to do. Yeah. So, Michael, if we look at all these factors intersecting with each other, what do you think uh, the Chinese economic strategy is going to be over the next decade? What are they going to try to achieve? Are they going to try to repair all these imbalances? Well, I think the important thing that happened in the last two to three years was a pretty complete recognition of what the problems are. I think Beijing now knows why this growth model cannot continue. The problem is that I don't think they have a very clear sense of what the alternative is. So I think um, what people in Beijing expect is that they are going to try to constrain the growth in debt and generate growth in other ways. Now, what are the other ways you can generate growth? Well, the growth in debt is used to fund basically non-productive investment in infrastructure and in the property sector. That's why the debt burden is growing so rapidly. So what you want to do, what every country that's followed this model has said they will do, is they will reduce their investment in the non-productive sectors property, which they really went after last year, which is going to be very difficult to revive, and infrastructure. The problem is that all the good sources of growth, thanks to COVID, which are consumption and, uh, and business investment, which is closely related to consumption, they've all contracted. So although Beijing has told us that they are going to rein in infrastructure spending and the property sector, in fact, they've only been able to rein in the property sector. Infrastructure spending is taking off because it's the only way to generate growth. Um, but at any rate, at least in theory, what you have to do is if you don't want to continue this model, which requires an infinite growth in debt, then you must bring down the source of debt, which is the non-productive investment. And you've got to replace it with something else. And there's only three other sources of demand, right? Investment, consumption, and the trade surplus. So one theory is reduce this bad investment and replace it with good investment in, in the high-tech sector, for example. The problem is that, first of all, every country says they're going to do that, and none have been able to pull it off. And China has been saying this for years. The problem is that you're investing 40 to 45% of GDP in the economy, which is huge. In most other economies, it's 15 to 20%. And out of that, two-thirds of it has gone into infrastructure and, uh, and uh, real estate. So you need to shift this enormous amount of investment out of the non-productive sectors into other sectors. But the rest of the economy just isn't big enough to absorb all of this investment. So, you know, it, it's easy to say, but it's quite hard to do. Add the fact that China is flooded with cheap capital. So it's not as if the high-tech sector is starving for capital. In fact, there's way too much private equity money in China, like in the rest of the world. So this idea that you can stop building bridges and create more high-tech companies, it's good on paper, really, really hard to do. But that's one path. The other path is they can bring down bad investment and increase consumption. The problem there is that the only way to increase the consumption share of GDP is to increase the household income share, which means reducing basically the government share. And that, I would argue, is, again, it's easy to say, it's easy to do the arithmetic, but it's politically really, really tough to do. 
because when you have a huge shift of income away from the government to the household sector, you must also be shifting an awful lot of political power. So they've been talking about doing this since 2007. They've barely advanced, quite tough to do. The third thing you can do is bring down bad investment and replace it with a growing trade surplus. Obviously, that can't work for a country the size of China, so that's not going to happen. And then the fourth thing you can do is bring down bad investment and replace it with nothing, in which case growth rates slow sharply. And ultimately, it's the fourth path that we're going to follow. But I think conceptually, they're not there yet. So there's going to be a lot of struggling with the other paths. And for the next three years, we're going to see a lot of stop, go, stop, go, until finally we start to see much slower growth. So, Michael, let's discuss for a second this fourth path, and especially the second, the third, and the fourth, if you don't mind. So I wrote an article on the Macro Compass newsletter that I write talking about China. Is this a place to invest or not? Does it have, should, should it have a place in your portfolio or not? And uh, one of the things that struck me the most when I was running the analysis is that, as you said, consumption as percentage of GDP is amongst the lowest in the world. We're talking about low 30s, which is, which is extremely low as a number. Now, one of the tactics could be effectively to raise the median real wage, inflation-adjusted wages, make sure they grow in inflation-adjusted terms to basically reward uh, by the productivity gains that have been not rewarded to the, to the median worker in China over the last, whatever, 20 or 30 years. But you say that, well, that's basically what we have been hearing somehow from, uh, from the CCP, if you ask me, over the last two to three years. Uh, what are your probabilities that that is going to happen? I mean, is it a 0% chance that they're going to try and do a hybrid model where that is a part? Or, I mean, how, do they, how do they think about that solution to the problem? Well, uh, it has to happen uh, because there's two main sources of growth for a large economy. We can, we can, you know, we can forget about the trade surplus because China's trade surplus is already so big that the rest of the world is not going to uh, absorb much more of an increase. So it's got to be consumption or investment. And when so much of the investment is non-productive, ultimately that has to stop, unless you believe that you know debt can grow infinitely, which I don't think any, any of us do. Um, so you get an adjustment. And when investment stops, if investment is the source of growth, then you stop investment and growth collapses. So you know, there are different ways you can adjust. The two most famous ways in history are the United States in the 1930s and Japan after 1990. In the 1930s, uh, you know, in the 1920s, the U.S. had very high savings rate, huge trade surpluses, uh, very badly distributed income, et cetera, et cetera. And the U.S. adjusted with a collapse in GDP, GDP contracted by about 35% in the first three years of the decade. And household income also contracted, by, but by only half of that. So notice the household income share rose. It was a brutal adjustment, but it adjusted very quickly. Um, another way you can adjust is the way the Japanese adjusted, in which is after 19, before 1990, GDP was growing four or 5%. After 1990, it grew roughly half a percent. But it wasn't as if everything dropped. Uh, household income and household consumption only dropped a little bit. It was investment that dropped off, you know, uh, uh, that, that basically dropped to below zero. 
So it, what you ended up having in Japan was a very long adjustment, probably worse for the economy over the long term, but certainly better over the short term and better politically and socially. Um, but uh, so you had in household income growing at one and a half percent, consumption growing at one and a half percent, GDP growing at half. So again, it rebalanced, not nearly enough, by the way. Japan never really did what they needed to do. But those are the, the, the two options. There's a third option, and that is that somehow you get the growth in household income to accelerate so that consumption grows at five or six percent and drags GDP behind it at three or four percent. No one's ever done that. And if the little bit of rebalancing that China has done is tough politically, the amount of rebalancing for this good outcome is, is, is many times higher but at least it's theoretically possible. But the point that I want to make is that this is just arithmetic. If you cannot depend on very high levels of investment to generate growth because this investment has become non-productive, then the only other source of growth must be consumption. So you will rebalance. The question is, how do you rebalance? And now, Michael, we are basically walking towards what is the most likely of these scenarios you're depicting, which is a combination, if I understand correctly, of in trying to increase, moderately increase uh, household consumption and household income uh, in a way that it is politically acceptable for the CCP to do over time, but at the same time also reduce malinvestment in China, which is another word to say deleveraging certain sectors in a relatively aggressive way, like we're seeing the property sector. Can you please walk us through how this deleveraging will work, which sectors will affect the most and how risky it is to run this strategy? It's really tough to do because the deleveraging has to affect the property and the infrastructure uh, sectors. Now, most economists, you know, when you're in the market, and I'm sure you, you know this, when you're in the market, you become very respectful of pro-cyclicality, of self-reinforcing yes. structures. And I think economists know about it in theory, but I don't think they really understand how, how vicious that, that can be. But you imagine, you know, to take a, let, let me tell you a very simple story. Uh, you have this rapid growth in China. And as, as you grow rapidly, the need for real estate, for property, buildings, et cetera, grows with it. And so um, that drives up prices in the real estate sector. And you end up building more and more stuff because of high growth expectations, right? If China grows at 10% forever, we're going to need this many uh, airports and subways and apartment buildings, et cetera, et cetera. The problem is that all of that investment becomes embedded in the growth expectations. So uh, why am I building all of these buildings? Because China is growing at 8%. Why is China growing at 8%? because I'm building all of these buildings. And the problem with that mechanism is that once you stop building, growth rates slow, and as growth rates slow, the justification for all that previous building disappears. So it turns out more and more of your, of, of your building becomes worthless. And as that happens, that increases the gap between the debt servicing cost and the debt servicing capacity, and that puts more downward pressure on growth. And I would say, whenever you look historically at any of these stories, the growth period always surprised us on the upside. And then the adjustment was 
always, without exception, much worse than anybody thought. Imagine if you had stood up in 1990 and said, for the next 20 years, Japan's going to grow at half a percent. You would have been laughed out of the room, right? I mean, yes. it's, it's absurd. There's no way that can happen. But in fact, it did happen. So what I would argue is that it probably has to do with this highly pro-cyclical nature of an investment-driven growth model, because the investment drives growth and the growth drives further investment. So you get caught up in that pro-cyclicality. And so what I would argue is that once you turn it around, it can be much more brutal than you expected. And this isn't just theory. Look at what happened in the property sector. I don't think Beijing expected their clampdown on the property sector to be nearly as brutal as it turned out to be. But, you know, all the things happen that we would expect. You stop the property sector. That has knock-on effects throughout the economy because property represented 25 to 30 percent of GDP. And of course, you know, if you stop building stuff, you stop hiring workers. If you stop hiring workers, they stop consuming. If they stop consuming, the restaurants go out of business and so on. It spreads through the economy. And I think that's the part that we are probably not recognizing. It's these, these sort of self-reinforcing pro-cyclical structures. And now the interesting part is that China happens to be uh, the credit engine or happened to be the credit creation engine of the world basically for the last 10 to 15 years at least and now we are discussing deleveraging which is not the process of creating less credit it is the pro the process of destroying existing malinvestment that that was created basically by this unproductive credit or recognizing you... that it was destroyed yeah yes at least correct and um now, this is very um, important for other nations around the world too, Europe and the US, for example. Uh, my, my question is, what we are witnessing now, Michael, is the first trial, let's say, from the, China, the CCP via the real estate sector to try and engineer that. How are they taking the, basically the more than proportionate reaction that we have seen, both in markets and in the sector? How are they taking stock of this reaction? Are we going to continue or this basically scared us to the point they're going to slow down this process in the future? Well, this year, probably because it's politically a very important year, it doesn't look like they're slowing down. In fact, um, in, in, in 2020, which was the year of COVID, the debt to GDP ratio rose by an astonishing 27 percentage points. Uh, this year, I don't think it'll be that bad, but I think it'll be the second biggest increase on record. There'll be a huge increase in, in, uh, in China's uh, debt to GDP ratio because there's an enormous amount of credit creation. Remember that there's, you know, there's demand from the consum consumers. That's way down because of COVID. There's demand from business investment. That's way down because consumption is down. And then there's demand from infrastructure investment, which requires debt. And that's way up. You know, that's going to represent 90% of all of the growth this year. Um, so we're going to see a, a, a pretty significant expansion of credit. The other thing to remember is that when you're really pushing the supply side of the economy and you're not supporting the demand side, the only way to resolve the gap is through more investment or through a bigger current account surplus. And so, you know, for the last two years, people keep saying the current account surplus is really big. It's going to start contracting. And I say, no, it's going to keep expanding because of this gap between production and consumption. It's continuing to grow. 
So we're seeing the, the current account surplus, particularly the trade surplus, grow very, very rapidly. Now, uh, again, those things can't go on forever. They've got to resolve them. And I think the, the, the question that we all have is, you know, the, the recognition of the problem and the speed with which they resolve them. If you were to advise the Chinese economy today, you would probably say, and many Chinese economists say this, the problem is a demand problem. There are certain supply constraints, you know, because of COVID, you close down factories, et cetera. But the really big problem in China has been a demand side problem. And yet, if you look at all of the uh, proposals, uh, policy proposals by the government, Shanghai recently announced 50 proposals. And you look through them all, and almost all of them are supply-side subsidies. There are a few demand-side subsidies, and they're tiny, basically consumption vouchers, which you know account for one-tenth, in some cases, one-hundredth of one percent of that locality's GDP, basically negligible. Yeah. But everything they're doing, even though they know they have a demand side problem, everything they're doing is on the supply side. So actually making the imbalances worse. And we could probably have a three hour conversation on why that's the case. But one of my favorite economists, uh, Albert Hirschman, used to talk a lot about this in, in the context of Latin America. And his argument is that it's institutionally very, very difficult to switch a development model, particularly a successful development model that's been in place for 20, 30, 40 years, because you build all of these political and economic and financial and regulatory institutions around the existing model. So shifting it becomes brutally difficult. And for me, that's the really big question in China, how they manage that shift. And so, Michael, to conclude the interview, we'd like to hear your base case scenario. Uh, and there are so many moving patterns in this puzzle, but what would be your base case scenario for China to choose as a policy path over the next decade or so to solve all these imbalances? Well, I think China is very unlikely to have a crisis because the uh, financial system is largely closed and heavily controlled. And for me, a financial crisis is a balance sheet problem, not a solvency problem. So that's unlikely to happen. There is a small chance that they will speed up the rebalancing process with major transfers from local governments to the household sector. But that's going to prove politically difficult. And I would argue that the next three to four years, the big fight in China will be between Beijing and the local governments. Um, but assuming that they're not really able to speed up that process, the most likely outcome, in my opinion, is 10 or 20 years of Japanese-style stagnation, growth rates of 2%, maybe 3%. Although, having said that, I always remind people that even the pessimists always got it wrong. It could be less than that. We don't really know. But it's going to be much, much slower growth for many years while they slowly grind through all of the imbalances. So, Michael, thanks for enlightening us on uh, China, all the structural imbalances, and how you think they're going to be solved. Um, if people want to hear or find more about your views, where can they do that? Uh, I've published several books. The most recent, uh, written with uh, Matthew Klein, is called Trade Wars or Class Wars, in which we argue that the same groups in the deficit and uh, uh, surplus countries 
benefit from the imbalances and the same groups, mostly workers and producers, pay the cost of those imbalances. In other words, we argue trade conflicts are not conflicts between nations, but rather conflicts between different uh, groups within the economy. Um, I'm very active on Twitter, um, at Michael X. Pettis, and I write very regularly in a number of media, but particularly for a blog on the Carnegie Endowment website. Yeah, and I can only recommend your short blogs. They're very insightful. Your Twitter account is great. Your books are great. Go and follow Michael, people. It's uh, it's a really great resource on China, and not only. Um, if you want to find more about my work, it's at the Macro Compass. It's a free newsletter. It's about education, financial insights, and investment ideas. Also, feel free to subscribe to the Blockers Macro channel if you like this interview and want to hear more. Thanks, Michael, for being here with us. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. It was a great pleasure. Bye-bye.